certainly see quickly how fast a decline could, could impact our, our everyday life that we take for granted. Over the years, the recruitment and creation of a healthy talent pipeline for national security jobs has become a major concern. Facing a shifting landscape of challenges, the private sector's competition, government shutdowns, changes in educational priorities, and hiring freezes, it has become increasingly difficult to attract enough young talent with the requisite skill sets. Um, because we do see that this generation, they care deeply. But where that comes to an abrupt halt is they don't necessarily see government work as a place to go do that. In particular, the U.S. government faces significant gaps in cyber and IT talent, with 16 times more federal employees in IT who are over 50 than under 30, leaving a looming talent cliff at a time when cyber and IT talent is more critical than ever. Uh, but it's still difficult. There are some enticing things about being in the private sector. But I think one of the areas that we really have to push on, like I said, is bridging the gap between the two and not making it one or the other. So, what's the bottom line? What are some of the reasons behind this talent gap? How can we raise awareness and get more young people interested? And what can the government do to address this growing concern? Every day we don't move this forward, we're losing ground. This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, the talent pipeline of America's national security. Joining us today is Sherry Van Sloan and Brett Hunt. Sherry is the National Intelligence Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and previously served as the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where she led human capital strategies, plans, and policies to support intelligence agencies. Brett is the Senior Director of the Next Generation Service Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance overseeing the Next Generation Service Corps initiative and has over 18 years of leadership experience in the public and private sectors, including serving in the U.S. Army and as a Foreign Service Officer at the Department of State. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, President of Network 2020. So just to start us off, um, Brett, starting with you, could you get us all on the same page? How would you define the challenge that I mentioned earlier? Could you put some numbers in comparison so that the audience can really understand you know, what it is we're talking about and why we should care about the public service national security pipeline issue now? Thanks so much, Courtney. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Uh, Sherry, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing the Zoom here. I'm honored to get to spend some time uh, with you as well. So, you know, we use the term a lot today in the United States of crisis. Uh, you know, we have crisis in, in all different places uh, in, our, in our lexicon and in, in, in our world. And so I'm not going to assign the term crisis to this quite yet, but I'll let the audience determine what it is they want to call it. We'll call it a big problem. Um, and, and just a little bit of context, when we talk about public sector, we'll, we'll get narrowly down kind of into the national security intelligence community space, but we're talking about uh, hiring challenges across all 
elements of government, that is the federal government, state government, and local government, all levels are facing similar or the same challenges of attracting uh, and hiring the top talent to come and work in the government. If we zoom in to the federal government very specifically, um, between 2020 and 2025, about a third of the federal government workforce is going to retire. That means they're between the ages of 60 to 64. Um, and so that not only is a major loss, one third of your workforce is retiring uh, and, and leaving, that leaves you know, spots open uh, that people were doing those jobs for many years. It also means that some of your most experienced folks, people with institutional knowledge, deep relationships across agencies uh, are leaving the federal government. So it, it, it almost takes it to a much higher level. That's It's about 190,000 individuals kind of leaving in the next couple of years. So, so that's, a, that's a pretty stark situation, particularly when you look at the supply side of, of government hiring, um, where we have you know, an incredibly low unemployment rate right now. So there's a lot of competition for talent out in the marketplace between the public, private, and nonprofit sector. Um, and so at that really low unemployment rate, your supply is, is diminished uh, in, in a way that is, is pretty historic, given the headwinds we have around folks retiring and leaving government. And so um, you know, I think that really pulls it into a place where we need to look at um, you know, why is it that, that folks are not choosing to work in government, uh, pursue public sector jobs? And that really takes us kind of, you know, I talked about the supply side of, of the, you know, low unemployment rate around 3.5%. When we look at the demand side and what product is being put out there by the government, um, oftentimes it's not great. Uh, I'm a big fan of government, but, you know, oftentimes the hiring process is not great. Uh, applicants uh, complain about, you know, not having compelling job descriptions, right, when they're looking at jobs and trying to, to choose whether they're going to take it. Um, Gen Z in particular is very interested in diversity, and there's oftentimes not genuine language around the value of diversity. Um, you know, I think we've all become accustomed to this, but in particular Gen Z, uh, we want a positive applicant experience. You know, we expect to have a pleasing uh, place to go apply for a job, learn about a job, uh, a, a warm handoff to a human being. We expect that in the marketplace now. And we're just, we don't see that uh, the public sector is keeping up with the private sector in terms of providing that, that kind of positive user experience when, when an applicant is going through the process. And then the final thing I'll say uh, is, you know, really uh, applicants complain about um, not knowing the full range of benefits that come with a government job, right? And so while your, your salary may be more, more attractive at the beginning of a job in the private sector, that's not taking into account the healthcare benefits, life insurance benefits, all of those other things that, that the, the government uh, can provide well um, that aren't necessarily you know, apparent to applicants in the current process. Um, so we have a major supply issue with you know, 190,000 federal government uh, workers leaving to retire. And then we have a demand side issue with uh, you know, really government agencies not competing well with the private sector. Great. Thank you, Brett. Um, Sherry, turning to you, Brett just outlined this big problem, as he defined it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd love just to hear from you, you know, what are the national security implications of falling short on recruitment for national security and public sector jobs? You know, when you're looking down the pipeline from your from your perspective, what are some of the biggest concerns and ramifications of this that you see? 
Yeah, I think this is a really important question. Um, first, thanks for having me today. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you. Um, I think, you know, when, when folks think about the federal workforce, um, you know, a lot of the everyday things we think about that we probably take for granted, um, having those not filled, those positions filled could impact every American in so many different ways. But when you're focusing in on the national security uh, workforce at the federal level, um, I think as we uh, continue to see the complexity of the world come at us in geopolitics and technology and pandemics, um, all the things that are happening at the speed that we've never seen before, you think about a lack of capability in, in cybersecurity and offensive cyber capabilities, supply chain, protecting the supply chain, uh, critical infrastructure. How do we work with the public sector and the private sector? How does that partnership get better um, to understand how we provide threat information to those to those critical infrastructures that we're trying to protect? Um, I think just thinking of in those four or five broad areas, right away you can see if we don't have the talent to collect that information, to analyze that information, including language talent and technical talent, and being able to relay that in a way at the speed that our, our, our private sector needs to have, um, you can certainly see quickly how fast um, a decline could, could impact our, our everyday life that we take for granted, right? Um, you think about critical infrastructure from the financial sector. I'm here in New York City for this fellowship, and we've talked to a lot of the different financial institutions. Um, protecting that alone is a huge impact on the federal workforce to be able to deliver that kind of threat information to those to those critical infrastructures that we take for you know everyday use of our banking systems. Um, so I think if you... Uh, I think Brett's points were really, really good on um, the federal government being able to attract talent, being able to, to engage with applicants and talk about benefits and really kind of giving insight into the critical work they'll be doing. Um, we have ways to start thinking about filling those gaps, but I think we're probably not helping ourselves in that way. Um, I think there's a lot more we can do in that space to really understand um, what the applicant population wants and needs and what we're not providing today that would help to fill those critical areas. Thank you. And that's a great segue into my next question uh, for you, Brett. Um, you've spent a lot of time working with university students, so millennials, and I guess even Gen Z now. Um, and these generations, I think, are largely known for being more attuned to the idea of public good. But it seems like this social focus isn't really translating into talent entering into the public sector in greater numbers. So um, you started to touch on some of those hurdles, but you know, what are some of the hurdles that you're seeing? You know, what is your, you know, just taking the pulse of this generation, like what what is it that they're that they're really interested in? And then, you know, how how would you recommend overcoming some of those hurdles? Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a great question um, because we do see that this generation more so than previous generations, they, they know more about the world. They are more connected to each other and to problems in not only their own community, but problems around the world um, because of the fact that they're native uh, you know, to this digital landscape that we all live in now. And so they care deeply about things uh, going on in their community and around the world. They want to serve the public good. They want to make things better. Um, but where that comes to an abrupt halt is they don't necessarily see government work as a place to go do that, 
right? They, they don't necessarily see that as, okay, if I want to help people, I go work for the company. They, they don't necessarily see that. And so, you know, one, um, one uh, survey uh, says that we have access to says that, you know, 25% of Gen C respondents say that they trust the government. 25%, I mean, 75% <laughs> don't trust the government. That's a serious, serious issue if you're trying to get somebody to come work for you. Now, uh, you know, there's been a lot of great writing recently as we've uh, memorialized the 20 year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, which I was part of in the desert uh, back in 2003. And so I've done a lot of the reading and it kind of talks about, you know, the, intel the intelligence community's failures at that time and how that did contribute to some distrust uh, going forward. And, and it kind of, even though we don't think about it every day, has become part of this lack of trust in government. Um, and so we have to, one, find a way for those folks to to trust government uh, more. Uh, and, and but that's that's a serious headwind. And I have some ideas there that I'll get back to. Um, but let's match that with another survey from from Tufts that talked about 65% of respondents in that survey in Gen Z, they think and talk to each other about politics, elections and other civic elements, right? So they're engaged on these issues. How do we bridge the gap? between their lack of trust in government and their desire to serve, and obviously they're engaged in civic elements of their lives with choosing a career in public service. You know, one of the ways that we're really doing it and the work that I do at the Volcker Alliance is really focused on getting upstream um, of this problem by engaging undergraduates in leadership development uh, and uh, public service values. So our goal with the Next Generation Service Corps is to inspire and prepare the next generation of leaders to, to uh, serve their communities and the country. And so we do that through programs that are much like ROTC, but are focused on civilian skills for civilian public service. Um, and so how do we identify as an 18, 19 year old, that person who wants to serve and help them take a college degree in whatever discipline they choose and match that to skills that are important to public service like working collaboratively, critical thinking, complex reasoning, strong communication, both orally and in, in written form. How do we take those students and develop them through, again, that's what we're trying to spur with the Next Generation Service Corps, through an undergraduate experience that prepares them to go and be the, the leaders we need in, in all levels of government. Okay, great, thanks. And, and actually just one follow-up there. Uh, in terms of the students that you have seen come to these programs, um, you know, what was the interest level like? And, and you know, were you, you know, how did you overcome any hurdles and in, in that trust that, that you had mentioned? So, so that's a great question. We really, approach students from the lens of um, who do you want to help and what do you want to serve, right? We don't approach them and say, hey, who wants a job in government, right? <laughs> that's that's not a very compelling thing to an 18-year-old. But we say, you know, what's your life experience? How does that lead you to want to serve? Okay, well, I grew up in a military family, so, you know, I understand the importance of, of the military. I grew up in a community um, that was underserved, and so our faith community was very involved in helping folks, you know, uh, get a leg up. So I want to serve. Great. Let's bring you into this program. Let's develop you. You're going to study engineering. You're going to study business. You're going to study history. You're going to study math. We are agnostic to that. We want you to study all those things. And we want to then inspire you to serve the public. And then we want to prepare you with the tangible skills necessary 
to be an effective public servant. So that's really how we approach the conversation. We, we don't say, you know, do you want to be a public servant? We say, what are you passionate about? How are you going to serve that community? Okay, let's get started. Thank you. Um, Sherry, kind of sticking with the with the university level um, conversation, you've done some really interesting writing. Um, and I'd love for you just to talk to us about what you see happening at the university level in terms of education that's impacting the pipeline for national security and future leadership talent. Thanks, Courtney. Yeah, so when I first got to CFR, I, I wrote a blog post about just, you know, I, I think over the last few decades, there's been this national call, um, call of action, I guess, for STEM talent, right? And which, which is absolutely right. We we need more technical talent. We need folks engaged in, in technical work at the university level. Um, but I think what's happened over time is we've lost the uh, ability to think about you know, civics and humanities intertwined with those technical degrees that we're pushing for and so we've seen a lot of those those uh that curriculum dying off over the over the last couple of decades um to create this space where a student could come out of a four-year degree program with a little bit more well-rounded um, um aspect of the world where they're they've got a technical degree in engineering or you name it mathematics but they also are a well-rounded um you know, citizen thinking about the broader implications of the technology they're studying or the, the kinds of work that they're going to do in the private or public sector. And, you know, I think, um, you know, some of the way that these curriculums are built at the university level today um, don't allow students to kind of veer off really easily um, out of a really technical track they're in. So I think there's some, some look looking there at how we can maybe think about the way we build our, our, our programs. Um, and you know, I think what it does in the end is these students, you know, we've seen, and I'm I'm glad to hear the tough survey is it's 65% of folks are engaged in those conversations because I think at a lot of different places in the country where students are striving for that uh STEM degree, um, they're striving for a salary of over a hundred thousand dollars when they graduate. There's things that are driving those kinds of degree um, programs. But I think there's a lack of context around how that's going to be used in the in the real world when they get out to actually do that kind of work. So I think there's um it's a push pull, right? We need more technical talent, of course. We, we're moving into a world where that's not going to be something we cannot have. But we we also need to have these well-rounded students who can understand why they're actually going to be looking at cybersecurity from a defensive or offensive position and what it means to geopolitics in the in the particular place they're looking at how to defend cyber uh, attacks from happening. Um, so I think there's just some more global context around um, some of these fields that we're pushing on for, for STEM and really technical areas that we have to reconsider the ability for these kids and these young students to really broaden their aperture um, and to come out with the critical thinking skills you mentioned, Brett, with the communication skills, because as we think about, um, you know, chat GPT, right, GPT, uh, some of those code writing skills are going to go away. We're not going to need those at some point because AI and other technologies will do that for us. It's how we use those technologies and what they can, the secondary and tertiary effects that of those technologies are going to mean in the national security space. Yeah. And, uh, just, oh, sorry. Just yeah, one, just one mm -hmm. as a follow-up to that, and um, mm -hmm. just great piece, Sherry. And and really, um, one of the things that we've done in the design of the next generation of service corps, as I said, by design interdisciplinary, disciplinary 
um, is, is really try to balance those engineering students with these elements that help them develop into a leader. You know, so we say so much to our engineering students. It doesn't matter if you are the best engineering student at the university, if you can't communicate it effectively to an audience, um, you know, you're not as effective as, as you could possibly be. And so for the, for example, the oldest program, the program I founded at Arizona State University, it's been around since 2015, uh, our top two in terms of numbers of students are coming out of the business uh, college and the engineering college. Um, and so that's the largest number of students that are in these programs. And I, many of those students actually see it as a way to balance this desire for the six-figure job uh, at, when they're 22 years old um, and, and, you know, the stability that comes uh, with, with a, a career that pays them well with a desire to serve. And, and so I think they often see being part of the Next Generation Service Corps as a way to balance those, those two things. And our goal would be to convert some of those folks to folks that are going to go work in government and, and apply their engineering skills or their marketing skills or their or their linguistic skills uh, to a government a government role. Um, I just uh, I'd, I'd love to get to have one more follow up, um, you know, in keeping on this conversation about lopsided fields of study, perhaps. Um, uh, yesterday, I think the uh, it's the national assessment, I forget what the exact acronym is that that the NAEP came out showing that scores in civics and history, I believe, among um, students in the United States have dropped rather dramatically. Uh, I, I'd love to just get your reactions to that in terms of, you know, how you see that feeding into the into the, the pipeline. Um, Sherry, yeah. So I, th I think, you know, there was a quote, uh, civics starts at home, right? When your kids are young, it talks, you talk up to your kids about how they can help others and serve others, but it's also curriculum at the K through six. It's curriculum and the middle schools, and we are lacking in those areas across the board. And so until we really start to, I think, um, you know, kind of shift the education system to start talking about those things and making them requirements before you can move on into high school and, and, and out of high school, um, there's got to be some emphasis from the educational system to start driving that at a much earlier age. I think that's... I don't, I don't think you can just start in the, the junior year of high school and say you have to have a half a year to start changing that equation you just mentioned. I think it's much earlier than that and it's much more intentional than that. I, uh, I, I would agree and, and I'll, just, um, I'll just add to that. Um, well, I would emphatically agree. <laughs> Perfect point, I can't add anything to that. But one thing I would add is, you know, oftentimes the problems that I see on the ground at universities around the country is we can't get out of our own way in terms of people who, desperately believe in this, but have a different approach to getting there. And so, so I think this, you know, if you can bring together, I'm going to throw a term that's not a term, but like a traditional civics minded, you know, faculty member together with somebody who's a little more focused on like enhanced civics, sometimes some call it, you know, applied civics, right? Um, if, the, if we could have a bridging of that somehow, and say, hey, we both believe in this. Let's find a way to compromise on what this should look like, or try some some different things. That would be great. There's that. Oftentimes, that can be a, an impediment. Um, is just the two sides of the civics question um, uh, or or movement uh, really saying, well, mine is the best. No, mine is the best. You know, I think we need to find some space to actually move things forward. Because every day we don't move this forward, we're we're losing ground. Completely agree. Thank great. you. Thank you. Um, Switching gears a little bit, Sherry, how does the ability for the public sector to innovate play into the ability to recruit talent to the national security workforce? 
Yeah, this is an, a hot topic and an age-old topic, I think, for the, the, the public vice the private sector uh, recruitment efforts. Um, I think, you know, before COVID, I think the federal government was already really kind of moving in the space to understand how we could do this better. We've got to be more attractive. Um, but COVID certainly helped us think through this much faster, right? We, we know that some of the most um, critical things folks are looking for when they're looking to for a job is really they want compensation, which for federal uh, workforce or public-private, there's always going to be a discrepancy um, in compensation, but they want meaningful work and they want workplace flexibility. And for the national security workforce, sometimes that flexibility is really hard, right? We work in skiffs, we work in places where you can't take your phone in every day, we work in places where you can't telework easily or remote work. And so we really have been spinning our wheels on trying to think about how we can be more innovative in that those, those areas. We've created new STEM compensation salaries, right? We're, we're thinking beyond that, but there's only so much we can do. And we're probably never going to get to meet the, the private sector salaries coming out of school or even mid-career hires. It's really difficult, but we do have a couple of really great programs um, active now and more in the, in the works on how we think about compensating differently. Um, meaningful work, I think that's one of our, our core areas where for the intelligence community, especially, I think, and I'm just biased there, but the work we do and, and how it lends to the national security apparatus and, and the um, interesting work that, you know, at the end of the day, something that you're doing is contributing to something larger. Um, and it's, it's giving information to folks who are making our most critical decisions on policy, the most insights we can on those, those uh, geopolitics and the things that are happening around the globe. Um, but we have been working closely with private sector, right? And I think this is one of the areas where the government um, federal workforce can really kind of lean forward and thinking about ways to bridge public and private in a way where folks can understand they can come in and work for the federal government, work for the national security workforce, but also have potential to reach out and do some time in the private sector and come back in and move more seamlessly between the two where there's not just, it's, it's so disparate sometimes on you either work for one or the other. How do we make that more of a seamless idea where it's, you know, you can work on both sides and contribute to national security in the same, in much of the same way. Uh, I know for the intelligence community, we had an effort ongoing, uh, we still do, it's called the Right Trusted Agile Workforce. And one of those areas where we pushed for new legislation was for private uh, public talent exchange, where we were able to send our folks into private sector for a while and have private sector folks come in and look at government problems for a while and help us kind of think through new ways of doing it, how to tackle hard problems that maybe we didn't have the right skill sets for, or that's something that the private side is way advanced um, um, from the public in certain areas. So help us think about how, to, how do we catch up? How do we get there? Um, so there's been a lot of, of thinking through how do we be more competitive? How do we think about being innovative when we're talking to applicants about working for the intelligence community or the national security workforce? Um, but it's, it's still hard, right? I think folks are a little bit, um, maybe it's misunderstood sometimes about who we are. I know we talk a lot of, to a lot of applicants, they think that everyone in the federal government is a political appointee, and that is not the case. And so a lot of times there's just a little bit of a misunderstanding about, you know, we, we are nonpartisan, we, we support any, you know, any president in the White House, we are civil servants, um, and the work we do is, is critical to not have that, um, that piece of it, the political piece of it at all in the work that we do every day. And so I think sometimes it's educational, We've done a lot of work on reaching out to an applicant pool across the country in new ways, looking at hotspots of the country that we don't target traditionally and we should be. Um, 
trying to do more virtual outreach, trying to you know do more ways of thinking about the intelligence community as one community and not 18 different agencies who folks get completely overwhelmed with understanding what those 18 different places do and how they contribute to the whole. Uh, I think we've done a lot of work in that space to really um, brand ourselves in new ways, uh, but it's still difficult. I think when folks think about you know public versus private, it's, there's some enticing things about being in the private sector. But I think one of the areas that we really have to push on, like I said, is um, bridging the gap between the two and not making it one or the other. Thank you. I, I was curious about that and was and was going to ask. So um, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Brett, shifting to another side of the national security equation, the military. Um, you had experience in the military. I think you, you both probably did. Um, what do you see in trends in military recruitment? And does that you know, how does that impact the broader picture of the national security pipeline? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's not good. Um, so, you know, if you look at just the applicant pool, not this is not propensity to serve, just the applicant pool of 17 to 24 year olds in the United States, um, only somewhere between 20 and 24 percent of that population is eligible to serve. Um, and that's due to issues related to obesity, uh, issues related to, um, you know, depression or anxiety, other things that that can be disqualifying for security clearances, um, legal issues, uh, drug use uh, issues. So, so that's the pool you start with before you ever try to recruit that person in. You're at twenty to twenty four percent. So, um, there's just news this week: the Army's going to miss its goal again. Um, so, the Army, you know, had. Uh, put a lot of money, a lot of effort behind, um, you know, increasing their numbers and, and they're going to miss it uh, again uh, for another year. And so it's a really difficult scenario, really difficult scenario. Um, and again, you know, I just think um, that uh, the military has done a better job because they've been doing it a lot longer than I think other government agencies at getting upstream of this, right? So so quite likely that if you are, you know, physically fit and doing well in school, that you're probably going to have a, a recruiter talk to you sometime between your freshman and junior year of high school um, uh, and, and, you know, potentially put you on a track to either become an officer or, or enlist after graduation. Um, but they, they need to be doing a, a, a better job of, of getting to those folks. Um, and even, you know, um, one of the intractable issues with, mil with military, uh, military recruitment that I think is probably shared by the intelligence community, but I won't speak for Sherry, are um, lack of innovation in what is qualifying and disqualifying for security clearances and for, for service um, that are very common for this current population of 17 to 24 year olds. For example, uh, you know, use of ADHD, ADD medications at certain parts, parts of their life, um, uh, use of, you know, different antipsychotics that may be now readily diagnosed and 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 uh, prescribed for folks with anxiety or other types of things that are then disqualifying uh, for the military. So, you know, if we miss a 17-year-old with a propensity to serve because they were on ADHD medication within the last 36 months, um, that person's probably going to move on to another career and choose not to go serve in the military. So I think that's that's one of the difficulties um, that faces that faces the military. Terrific. Thank you. Sherry, another area of national security that we haven't yet talked about is the development and production of goods that are key to national security. So could you please talk about the CHIPS Act that was passed last year and how the talent pipeline plays into the ability to execute on that act? 
Yeah, so I would love to. This is a really interesting area for me I've been looking into um, recently. Um, you know, as you all know, the CHIPS Act uh, put over $50 billion into the semiconductor research development, manufacturing, and workforce development. Um, and I think there's a lot of discussion going on around, you know, building fabs and building the capability, but there's not a lot of discussion, maybe more broadly, on how we're looking at building that talent pipeline. Um, and so if you think from the intelligence community and the national security workforce, these things are really important to us and the things and the way we build systems uh, and to collect and, and analyze. So they're, they're really critical to us as well. But to build that talent pipeline takes a lot of work on the academic side of the house, right? And so I've met with several folks from the National Science Foundation who are managing grants, um, NIST. I've talked to the you know, Intel Corporation on, on how they're thinking about talent. Um, and I really, you know, it's really fascinating to see the, the grant process is already up and running. There's already a call for grants. So this thing is moving. It's not one of those pieces of legislation that kind of sits on the table and collects dust. There's a lot of activity in this space. Um, <clears throat> but it seems to me that we've got, you know, I think a lot of academic activity in the states where there are already fabs built, right? And these fabs are very, very expensive to build. And so you can imagine that they're building kind of talent around those areas where they have those 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 um, those fabs right so ohio arizona texas i mean those are some of the really big states that are going to be leveraging some of these these funds to build curriculum to produce more students to work in these kinds of these kinds of um facilities um i would say too though after speaking with several companies you know there's more to this population of workforce that is that high-tech talent so not all of the talent at Intel or you name it, any other company that's doing this kind of work is PhD level talent. There's a gap there. There's a huge gap in that space where um, US talent pipeline doesn't produce enough talent there today. Um, and there's a lot of discussion going on about immigration policy and how immigration changes could help, you know, fill that, that gap that we have at that really top end PhD talent that's driving the leading edge chip development that we want to get ourselves into. Um, but for the other parts of the, the packaging and manufacturing and testing, um, there are uh, there's other talent needed and it's not just PhD level. It's um, a two-year degree. It's four-year degree. Um, even high school talent is being looked at for some of those jobs. And so I think that discussion and that, um, uh, that broader discussion for the U.S., you know, kind of entire workforce, not just those states where we think talent is critical, we've got to start having that conversation so that there's kind of a national call to action for this kind of work. If the U.S. wants to be a leader in this industry, as we do, um, we've really got to start getting the word out about how, how young kids can get involved in this kind of work. Um, and I think there are universities who are doing this very well now. Brett, you probably know ASU and University of Arizona are both heavily involved in building curriculum to, to build this kind of talent. Uh, the Ohio State University is actively engaged um, in this process as well. They've got a consortium, I think, of 36 schools in Ohio that are involved with um, The Ohio State University. Many of those are two-year degree schools, kind of talking to kids and building curriculum about how um, we're, we're needing this talent pipeline to help the U.S. be a leader in the semiconductor business, uh, and especially not just in the trailing edge um, which other countries are are actively engaged in too. I think China is building the most facilities now for the, the leading edge chip development, but it's that, I'm sorry, the trailing edge, it's that leading edge, the next generation of chips is where we really want to be um, a leader in it, that industry. That's great. And that's actually a great segue about um, 
recruitment and how in the questioner writes in the past, it was in colleges, is anyone thinking about recruitment in trade schools? And I think you mentioned a little bit of this, but, you know, would you mind expanding, you know, both of you, you know, are you seeing um, opportunities that, that, you know, go beyond, say, a four-year college um, to, to look for recruitment? Brad, would you like to go first? I can chime in a little bit here. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we're focused on with our work um, are uh, transfer students. And so these are, these are oftentimes students that are moving into roles, um, you know, at, right out of high school, have life experience, and then are coming back to the university to add a degree, right? Maybe two, two more years of a degree. And I think that's a really important space um, that uh, is that both the government and key national security private sector interests like uh, CHIPS should be looking at, um, because that is a population of student um, that is coming to attain education when they need it for their next step, right? They're not doing it in an anticipation of something, right? They're doing it because to move to the next level, I need to be able to do this. And I think just being nimble enough as universities, I think that's going to be a, a key, key element to that. Uh, and then I will chime in on the Arizona side. I sit here uh, at Arizona State University. It's where I'm at today in my office. Um, and I can tell you, it's been really interesting to see not only the engineering college getting you know completely embedded in this work and, and, a, and a full effort by the university and Dr. Crow here at ASU at doing it, but the way that it's translating across all other disciplines. Um, so I'm in the School of Public Affairs as a professor of practice, and, and I have students that uh, are working on issues related to machine learning and public policy as it relates to uh, to chip development, right? You know, that's this fascinating wrinkle that, oh, by the way, Sherry probably has an intelligence community need at some point in terms of analysis. Um, and so those are the types of young people who are 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, um, who, you know, I think will be well positioned to move into one position, maybe with the city of Phoenix, and then go work for in the private sector for manufacturer, and then maybe an, an excellent candidate for a federal role uh, in the intelligence community analyzing those issues. That's really encouraging, Brett. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so I think for from the Intel community perspective or you know, national security workforce, we are actually looking further into, we used to be very, very uh, four-year degree focused. Um, and there's a lot of areas of work that we are we have gaps in that we know that could be done with a two-year degree. Um, and I think I think there's so there's a lot more recruitment efforts at some of the associate degree schools. Um, we're really targeting those. Um, also talking to kids who may just have certificate programs, right? I mean, there's some incredible um, coding and IT talent that maybe not even have their two-year degree. And, and so at some point, do you have to think about whether that's even needed or not, or are certificate-based programs um, enough to, to actually fill some of those critical gaps where kids aren't going to go back to school yet, maybe, or you get them in and you promise, you know, look, if I had my way, I would be targeting two-year schools to say, do your two years, come in to work for the federal government, we'll pay for your next two years and get you your four-year degree. There's so many ways we could think about leveraging talent that um, may not be thinking yet about a national security role. Um, but I think we have certainly overcome the idea that every applicant must have a four-year degree, especially in some of those critical gap areas where we know that four-year degree isn't going to make it or break it on their ability to conduct the work that we need done. So I think there's a lot of movement there. And, and I, I would say that from a from the Intel side, from the Department of Defense side, that's being looked at very closely and, and um, we're changing the way we're thinking about recruitment in those schools. And uh, just an addition to that, uh, one, Sherry, we should partner on Next Generation Service Corps, have those two-year students come into the Next Generation Service Corps and then be ready to go work for you. 
um, but uh, a place where there's a lot of really interesting innovation around um, this are actually community colleges adjacent to military installations. Um, because those military installations uh, most, you know, quite often have a very specific need. So I'm thinking uh, where I, I was stationed at Fort Huachuca in Southern Arizona, the Intel Center, and uh, there, the Cochise Community College has very specific programs with the University of Arizona um, for needs of that installation. Um, and so they've built these very technical two-year degrees, right, that you walk straight out and go to a job, you know, at Fort Huachuca. Um, and so I think there's a model there. Right. And, and if we could somehow find a way to innovate on that model at a larger scale, um, I think you get you know, to a place where you could be attracting that talent, because by and large, the, the transfer student or whatever you want to term that population, it's termed different in different states. But the transfer population, uh, they have more life experience than your 18 to 22 year old. They um, are more diverse than your 18 to 22 year old at a, at a four year university. Um, and they come in with a whole other set of skills. That, that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And so we should be embracing that population, running straight at that population um, and, and you know, really allowing them to find you know, meaning and uh, economic impact um, by you know, transitioning to their four-year degree and then going on to a great career. This was a fascinating discussion, a little bit terrifying, also hopeful, <laughs> a combination of both. Um, so th thank you both for the work you do. Um, it's clearly a problem that we should all be keeping our eyes on. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you everyone for, for listening. Take care. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more insight and analysis on global issues, and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org.